The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So I'd like to welcome you all and thank you for coming today and um, sharing in some Dharma with me. So lovely to be here. Firstly, I think we'll just uh, settle in and have a couple of minutes of some quiet meditation. It helps to bring us together, to bring us present in this space. But I want that we... Um, now, I might have to get them to put that photo up, if you'd like. I want us to um, have our eyes just very lightly, not fully closed. We're not going into a deep state of bliss or a samadhi, but we're going into a present awareness, attentive awareness of where we are. this hall, seated on a cushion or a chair, and just settling the mind, for those who are still chatting and a little restless, just bringing yourself into meditation. Just being aware of your body in the space that it is. Nothing else other than this body is seated on this cushion. Back is erect. And we're just relaxing, breathing very naturally. Not pushing anything away, allowing whatever sights appear. Or sounds. There's nowhere to go with our thoughts. There's nothing we have to do other than just be present, be here. All our intentions for the rest of the day will begin once we leave here. allowing ourselves to enter into this moment, this place, this energy, with awareness just of what is, nothing special. Every moment it changes, even if we're looking at the carpet, it's not the same view we had a moment ago. Just looking at filtered light through our semi-closed eyes, the light changes. Thoughts appearing in the mind, they come and go. You can't stop them. They were parts of their own.
sense of touch or feeling, experiences within the body. They have their conditions to be. practice of this open, attentive awareness doesn't actually have a name. We've added things like mindfulness, concentration, focus, being here, whatever. It is what it is. The more we can come back to it in the day, the more it can grow in whatever it is we're doing, whether we're sitting, walking, laying down. The less we'll be distracted. trying to get into states, or we're trying to create some effect or have some outcome of practice. We will never reach it. Reality, there's nothing really to be attained, nothing to be rejected. It all enters from the same place and goes back to the same place. And however hard we try, in the trying, in the effort, we miss it. You may relax your body and stay attentive or continue and just listen. On the board there is a a photograph I took the other day. Fortunately it wasn't one that I wanted to talk about actually, but uh, the other was the night before I had finished an afternoon of working outside and fencing and feeling a little tired. I went to sit on one of my favorite logs and just ponder on the pond or gaze into the forest behind it. This evening there was a a very soft glow somewhere about five, six o'clock in the evening soft glow coming through the forest over the pond. It was shimmering, reflective. And quite colorful actually, quite uh, luminous. I noticed a little pile of uh, topping, path topping had come down in the rain 
and settled in one corner. Then my eyes were attracted to a movement and a little red shape flashed up and disappeared into the darkness of the water. And then my eyes caught the transparent light coming through an iris leaf. The sunlight in the evening is quite soft, but it's quite penetrating. So it illuminates these things. And slowly as my mind settled and I entered into a deep, quiet state with my eyes still just poised in front, not on anything particular, perhaps the whole. I noticed that in that spacious awareness how much we can see. Meditation of seeing is the capacity to not filter, not block anything out. And for it to become part of who we are in that moment and for ourselves to become part of the scenery in all its very multifaceted shapes and form and color and array of experiences that are happening. And I'll share a little bit more of this in light of some teaching that I'm studying, which goes into the infinite realms of being. It's called the Avatamsaka Sutta or the Flower Garland Sutta, sometimes a flower ornament. It's a very large volu volume of text, 40 volumes, and uh, an American man by the name of Thomas Cleary, he translated it many years ago. And I had the fortune to study it for one year when I was in Korea living with the nuns. My teacher is a, an academic and scholar of this, this teaching and many others. So I went to study with her for a year. But I didn't really understand it then. However, I noticed I experienced looking at the world differently. I experienced this sense of less need to, to identify or control. At that time, I had a much more appreciative and more um, whole view of the many little facets of our life and what it is we're part of. The sutra, let's see if I can just find a couple of notes on it here. So probably won't. Um, it speaks to all the deeds of the Buddha, all the actions, and the resulting merits of his actions are what is called the blossoms or the, the garland, the flower garland. And in Mahayana Buddha, in Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about infinite Buddhas, so to speak, infinite potential of Buddhas. And in each of these garland is a Buddha in the center, which means that the function of what, who we know and what we know about Shakyamuni Buddha is repeated in this infinite flower garland infinite flowers, infinite Buddhas, all with these very enlightened actions. So you can imagine studying all of this over a year, how the mind expands. And it is really um, the discourse begins in this atheum of bodhisattvas and enlightened beings who come to listen to this, the Buddha teaching 
about this sutra. And Robert Thurman, an American scholar who I'm studying with at the moment on this sutra, he chants part of it. And so today's talk is really more about um, the great value and use of chanting and memorizing and studying text in a way that illuminates the depth of a text through sound and through allowing what it is we hear from our own voice or the, the teachings of others who teach in this way, it resonates very deeply and on a very subtle level within us to awaken a chord of resonance with that teaching. And so when I'm listening to Robert both inform and teach about this very complex sutra and explain many of the symbols and many of the, the great qualities that are expressed from the view of an enlightened perspective, It is as if I know it within myself on some level. There is some part of it who deeply understands the Dhamma, even though we don't necessarily believe it. But when we hear a truth, we know it. It's a very wonderful thing. So, you know, I sit and listen, and then do some practice for a couple of hours, And there is a, the very last, in this 40 chapters of this book, the last chapter, the 39th chapter, is a journey by a young adept by the name of Sadhana. And he's wanting to go on and become enlightened. So he goes to Manjushri, which is the, bo the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, so he goes to a great wise teacher and he says, how can I become enlightened? And Manjushri tells him, you need to find very wise, noble, good friends who can teach you the Dhamma and how they became enlightened. What brought them to emancipation and freedom? So he says, go out and seek these wonderful friends, these teachers. And don't be satisfied just there in listening, but take those teachings and repeat them in your heart. Memorize them, say them. And in that time, of course, everything wasn't said, it was chanted from the time of the Buddha before texts were written, everything was chanted. I mean, much of what I'm saying to this audience, you know this, but many young Buddhists now, young people wanting to learn meditation, they're very selective. I want to learn some insight. I want to get to understand mindfulness. They're taking a little peace out of the path, a technique, and it has great benefits. I'm not denying any of this. It has wonderful benefits. Just as chanting a mantra has wonderful benefits, it concentrates the mind and it penetrates very deeply. But it is not the whole path. It's not a full path. So the reason for sending Sadhana out is not to just learn one thing from a teacher. Go and see how others attained their wisdom and take it into your heart and practice it. So Sadhana goes out and he meets 
his first teacher was called the Cloud of Virtue, a monk by the name of Cloud of Virtue. So the whole sutra, these very elaborate names, like my name is Ji Guang, is uh, the light of wisdom. If you add anything else to it, you know, it might be the light of flowery wisdom or the light of <laughs> wholesome wisdom or, you know, you can add infinite labels that, that, that reflect wisdom. And he relates to him what he knows is the conduct of a, a bodhisattva, that is one on the path to practice and become enlightened. Is that a bodhisattva will have reached a limit until, of course, they become fully emancipated. And in Mahayana Buddhism, that is to become a future Buddha in infinite years, <laughs> maybe. But he said, even though you go and learn and you discern, there is a limitation. So I'll send you to the next teacher. And he sends him on, and Sadhana encounters 52 teachers in all. They're women, laymen, priests, beggars, kings and queens. And he learns about the sea from a fisherman, the nature of the sea. I've given talks on this the wisdom of the ocean, the samadhi of the great ocean, or the great ocean samadhi, which is the infinite play of our interconnectedness, the non-dual, 12-link affiliation of all life. He learns from a doctor and compassion about how he is so compassionate for the ill and how he treats the ill. A wealthy man teaches him about frugality and how he gives his wealth, uses his wealth in a wise and generous way. A monk teaches him how to attain peace through meditation. A disabled person taught him about patience and respect of this body with limitations. He learns how to be simply happy from children or from humble people how to be content. He learns harmony from burning incense and seeing flower arrangements. So it's not just he's learning from uh, sentient Beings, but even from innate objects, such as the wisdom of incense. My teacher once did a picture. He did a, a sort of a figure, a Buddha-type figure, of the three nuns at that time, me and two of my nun sisters. And it actually, in a very, very simply, just an outline of our shape. And some the outlines actually looked like us. And then he had a little verse next to it. And my verse was, when you meditate, meditate. Look at the burning incense, the ash of the incense, or the, the smoke of the incense as it burns. And that will teach you how to meditate. That was in the verse. By just observing that, it would help develop my meditation. And I've done this practice over many years. And from nature he observed how plants grow from a decaying tree, revealing the uncertainty of life and too its continuum. And so he has this journey that goes through until he comes to the last teacher and he meets Maitreya Buddha, 
who is considered the future Buddha. And he says, whatever you learn, as it becomes your wisdom, your, your attainment of knowledge in that field, then you must use it to bring benefit to others. It must be used, not just for your own benefit, to alleviate the suffering of others and offer the merits of your attainment for their benefits to awaken. So this sutra has brought me back to doing some longer chants. And so I wanted to um, share, you know, that with my chanting, as I have done various periods of chanting over the, over the many years, particularly in Korea, where I, it became my focal practice, often because I felt it needed, I needed some healing or I needed to, you know, move in a different way. But once I went, and I have said this story before, once I went up to a very high mountain in Korea, uh, Suroksan, I think it is called, and there is a little temple and in that temple, there's no Buddha. Just on the top of the mountain, there's a little temple, not a big temple at that time, a little temple with a big window, and there is a pagoda, beautiful pagoda. Inside there, there's Buddhist relics. So rather than attached to a form, outer form, attach your mind, your attention, your practice, your chanting, to its essence. Relics are seen as the essence of the Buddha. Of course, we love to attach to the form of them, but actually they are talking about that awakening, that enlightened mind. And so while I was practicing, I had actually had uh, hurt my back quite seriously and had a small operation which was botched in the hospital in Korea and could barely walk. You know, I was completely limping. I had no energy. They had damaged some of my disc, my sciatica, damaged the sciatica nerve. So I, I thought, well, I either go back to Australia or I will do some chanting practice. And I had deep belief that this is beneficial. And so I went and there were, Two old sisters, old women who had spent their life going from temple to temple doing this chanting and bowing practices. They were quite elderly at the time, so they wouldn't be with us today. But they were somehow like two bodhisattvas, and they, they slept me between them, and they would take me up this hill and then they said, just bow. And I mean, I had done a lot of bowing practice, but I couldn't at that time. Just bow a few bows. So like more like the Theravada at first, Theravada bows, where I'd kneel down and bow. And then over the days and weeks, I started to bow properly. And along with the chanting, and when you're in a group chanting, the name of the Buddha, and the preliminary chants and the beneficial chants for all beings, there is an energy there. And I felt very deeply energized and inspired, and I started to bow. And within about two weeks, I was bowing 3,000 3, bows a day. 3,000. From not being able to walk to bowing 3,000. And... All my back, the skin peeled off my back. It was bright yellow. Now, they had injected iodine through the old spinal taps, they used to call them, into my back, and they had mist. And, of course, the iodine went throughout my body and affected my body. And all the iodine was coming out, was being pushed out. And all the skin on my back peeled off, and the iodine came out of my body from chanting. So, firsthand, I know that deep capacity for healing from chanting.
when you do it as a sincere practice, when you do it with the Buddha in your mind. So I'm going to show, before I, I go to these pictures, I want to share a poem. Now, it's not particularly a poem about these pictures, but it is a poem by a very famous Korean monk in the 1500s, 1552. He visits his home village and he writes this poem. But he was a very famous uh, uh, chanting and, and uh, um, practitioner of, of ritual and chanting. His name was uh, Hu Jong. He says, after 30 years, I've returned to my home village. My people have died, the homes have been destroyed, the village is neglected. The green mountains are silent, the spring skies darken. A single cry of the cockatoo comes faintly from afar. A row of boys and girls peer through a window pane. And a white-haired elderly couple of neighbors asked my name, my birth name. As, and as soon as they knew my birth name, tears flowed. The dark gray heavens are like the sea reflecting in the moonlight at midnight. Until eight years, he was me. Now, after eight years, I am he. And I'll come back to this poem in the light of what I'm talking about, because I'm actually reflecting on um, stories from way, way back. <laughs> and I know that when I go back to Korea and I go and visit temples, they're not the same as my memory. I see people, they've got old like me, but I still remember them. And I go looking for people, chanting teachers or meditation teachers, and they're no longer here. And I think, is this a different country, a different place? I don't know this place anymore. I don't know these people anymore. Until I sit down to practice. And usually when I'm away, I do go and visit a chanting temple and do some prayers and chanting. I do go to temples and I meditate and I do, like Sadhana, go and visit teachers to learn, you know, be inspired. And often teachers that I've known, monks and nuns I've known, who are around my age, who are now the leaders of Buddhism in Korea. And to see how their wisdom has developed and how their path has developed and what I can learn from them. We can always learn from anybody and anything, but particularly those who have inspired us and inspire, continue to inspire. So I'm going to show a few texts because time runs away quite quickly. And these texts, the reason I bring them up, because they are among the oldest remnants of ritual and chanting texts in the world from different countries. They are free um, for use. It does say it's open domain and free for use, So, but I do thank whoever has put them up on YouTube, on the, uh, not YouTube, on the internet, and they come from one of the museums in, in England. So if you'd like to share the manuscript... Oh, it's me who does it. Yes, there we go. Um, unfortunately, I forgot to include all this, the script of them. But anyway, I know, oh, we have lost the Tibetan one, I think. Yes, we had lost the first one somewhere. There was a Tibetan script there that's, that's vanished. doesn't matter. It's gone. But the first one was a Tibetan script. It was from about the 11th century. Um, many of them around the between the, they're actually between the seventh century. The oldest is Korean, and the thirteenth um, century, I think, twelve hundred. So they're quite old. Um, this one is a Thai script, as you can see. It is um, 
a celebration of some sort, but it is monks in discussion, probably uh, chanting or in debate or in, in a study context. And um, my, my text did have a lot more. Now, we are, have sort of somehow got this, doesn't matter too much, but we're missing quite a, a few. I may have uploaded the wrong one. Uh, there was another. There was another Khmer one, which was very, very beautiful. Which was, and I did see the Khmer one put up there. Oh, what happened to these things? Um, the Khmer one was a, a a ritual that they did when somebody passes away, and it was very old. Um, it was eighth century, and on. Um, where they took leaves and pressed the leaves together to make like a paper. And then they would paint on the paper. Um, so that was uh, very beautiful. This one is uh, Japanese. And the, it's an Amitabha. Again, it is uh, part of a book. And this one is from the um, uh, ninth cen uh, 10th century. Um, Quite common, you can still they still sometimes appear, but these, as I say, are probably among the rarest remnants of very very old texts because they are original in in uh, their copies of you know photographs of the original text. And Abhitabha is a pure land, so many of the chanting temples have a, 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 in Korea, Japan, China. Many of the chanting temples have a relationship with Amitabha. They practice what is called Pure Land Buddhism, so they chant the name of Amitabha or they chant to the um, Bodhisattva Compassion, um, Avakloshiteshvara or Kuan Yin, we say Kuan Sin Borsal in Korea. And these are developing the heart of compassion the qualities of, of um, Amitabha, the pure land qualities, the pure conscious, luminous qualities of compassion. And they also develop the, um, and I have talked about this many times, about the many hands of Avakaloshiteshvara, the thousand hands and thousand eyes. And each of those hands has an object, a tool, that can help and benefit others. And in the practices, you, you visualize these different tools like beads or um, a book or, you know, some other tool uh, as part of chanting and as part of the ritual. Now, Tibetan manuscripts, ah, it is here. You know, the Tibetan manuscripts are often um, a ritual which includes the tantric Buddhist meditations, and so you visualize the pictures, you visualize what it is you're chanting, and they are to do with specific heavenly realms and the deities that, that uh, are the, the, the enlightened qualities of that realm. And it does depend on the circumstances of people as to what they practice, uh, in the Thai uh, one that I just showed you, an extract from the Tripitaka, so it is actually um, in that very first one, it's an extract from the Buddhist teachings on the Abhidharma Pitaka, and it has apparently some Khmer script with it. So the manuscript is the, uh, the Cambodian manuscript, which I don't have which was uh, um, a little bit later, actually. That was from the 18th century and from Siam. And it was, uh, again, a meditation, a, ch a ritual of chanting a meditation um, that results in, in very, very deep states of, of um, samatha meditation. And it also... Um, offers a vi visualization of the decaying of a corpse. So that was one that you do 
for a death ritual. So they're often a depiction. When they're a picture, even though you might be chanting, you are visualizing these images. Now there's one here that has the... This one is called the 100 Seated Images of Amitabha. It is a prayer sheet, and uh, it has each of those images as a little stamp. They stamp on it, a separate stamp. And it has the 48 vows, the 48 practices, that vows that you practice for to be part of this, um, uh, this faith or this... Uh, um, the pure land, uh, what they call the immeasurable light practices, the immeasurable infinite pure land practices. Um, and then we have here a Dharani. Now, Dharanis are, uh, and that's a little pagoda, uh, a pagoda. Again, it's Japanese. And these little, these Dharanis um, were often created, printed onto a cloth, and then they're put up on a big scroll or a big screen. And the Dharanis, like I, I will mention at the end with the Korean, the oldest Korean text is a Dharani, Shimyo Jangude Dharani, something we chanted over and over again. Shimyo Jangude Dharani And then you get very fast as you go along, Shimyo Jangude Dharani, you know, and it becomes just a stream of sound. And uh, it was something I did, used to practice 108 of these long chants, these Dharanis. And they are something that concentrates the mind and, and the body, you know, the whole body-mind becomes uh, as one. And it's just sound, pure sound that enters on a very, very deep level. Because a drani has many syllables in one sound. Each of those tiny little syllables do something in the body and mind. Do something with your energy. And so anyone who has studied and practiced the dharanis will know and the mandala, the, uh, the actual uh, little pagoda, um, is, um, what did I have here? Oh, no, I don't have it. I thought I had something else there. But the pagodas, you know, they, oh, that's right. This, this uh, script, this Dharani came out of this pagoda. It was rolled up in that pagoda. And that pagoda, when they um, uh, were repairing a temple, it was inside a Buddha. So the Buddha had been damaged. They had removed the Buddha inside. There's usually a little pagoda. There's texts of the Buddha, relics of the Buddha. Um, and these little pagodas are all, may have 108 of them, may have a 1,000 plus of them, they have texts in them. Yeah. And the, the, oops, the Cambodian one I don't have, uh, but this one is also interesting. So this one is a um, the uh, seated Amitabha, which is in... Uh, oh, no, that's the other one that we had. Let me just come here. Uh, No, it must be this one. So this is 12th century. It's printed on a flat sheet. And these were quite popular. You know, they were often in homes um, in China, Korea, and, and later in Japan. And it is a meditation on the lotus on a throne. So it is the Buddha. You can see it's all a lotus Im Im imagery from... Uh, um, right in the center, the, the, the Buddha seated on, Amitabha Buddha seated on a lotus. And then it goes out into the... So this is a heavenly realm. Again, it has, if I can see correctly, it has the thousand hands and the thousand eyes are on the outside. And so these are the, the, the palaces in the four directions of these heavens. So often with a mandala, that's, an, that's a common image that they will have. And they will have special chants that go to each of the directions 
In later time, they this one's a woodblock print, but in later time they became a, a painting, you know, so you see all those very famous Tibetan, beautiful Tibetan mandala paintings. But this is very old. You know, if you go back to the 12th century, um, that is quite an old image. And this is another very interesting one because this is... Uh, these little drawings are uh, a text for the illiterate. So they can see the little pictures and they know what it's saying. And so this is also um, this little sutra, which is a hymn, hymn book actually. It's uh, one to, to chant by. Um, again, it is to the Bodhisattva of Compassion. Avakaloshiteshvara. So a lot, as I said, a lot of the chanting in this way, even though we have chanting for Shakyamuni Buddha, we may have chanting for other Buddhas or infinite realms of, of teachers and Buddhas, still this is, um, you know, this is Amitabharis and, and Kwansin Bosal are the main deities in this part of the world for chanting to. And, and of course, usually people chant because they want something. It's only when you've practiced a long time that you realize there's nothing out there you can get, you know. You're not going to necessarily gain from uh, something out there from the images, but it's something that comes in from within you and it comes out from your, your depth of understanding. And this provided a way for people, again, as I who couldn't read but still could gain merit. And you would see on in Korea and other places in China, paintings on the temples, walls. And again, that is so people who cannot read or cannot, uh, they, can, they can not read words, but they cannot speak them, but they can see the images. So there's a lot of people in, you know, 100 years ago or so who could not read and write. Now, this is, this is the oldest text ever found. So if you can imagine, this was written between 1680 and 704. And it's so, it suggests that there were also others prior that. You know, they had woodblock. And they know it because they know this text was only written during the time of um, a very great Chinese queen, Empress Wu. So it was her text. When she passed on, it wasn't used anymore. So they know, you know, when it was written, they know when in the temple it came from, when that temple was built. So it has to be part of that um, inauguration ceremony or soon after. So that was found in Korea in 1966. Possibly came from China, but they don't know. Because it is uh, talking about Empress Wu. And it is her script. But at that time, China and Korea, you know, <laughs> the divisions weren't, weren't so obvious. You know, Mongol and China and Korea, they had three main um, dynasties, you might say, or three main areas. The, the Kogryo, the Shila, which is a big part of Korea, and the, the Koryo later, or the Baekje. Baekje was earliest Kogryo and then Shila. And Sheila was the 8th century, the others were earlier. So they were already developing as a country, but hadn't fully. So the interrelationship between China would have been very great. So I just wanted to share these because the teachings, the, these uh, practices of, of chanting and memorization uh, for healing purpose, for awakening purpose, for realization on many levels have been there since the time of the Buddha. And they have inspired, it's through these teachings that went from India to China, from China to Korea, Korea to Japan, China to Vietnam, that have developed those traditions in those cultures. And for me, I find when I go and I do a chanting practice, or I do it for whatever purpose, healing, or just uh, um, as I do daily, add extra chants, 
at different times, that my meditation, my inspiration, my aspirations, my concentration, my devotion grows. It doesn't grow just from meditation. I mean, mind you, my very, very first experience of Buddhism, I can't say this completely because I did have my, probably my deepest and greatest experience after three days of meditating. So that was my greatest inspiration to continue to this, this day. But on the path, we have many obstacles and hurdles. And recently, like many of you, this last few years has been difficult. I live on my own and I've noticed fewer people come or fewer people call. or So I reach out where I can because I know others are suffering a lot too. And with the floods, recent floods, I've been calling people and I know at least one of my friends, has, her house has been flooded in Castle, Maine. Others I haven't heard back, so I'm wondering... And I've having gone through such disasters, not flood disasters, fire disasters, gone through disaster. You know, it. Um, after that, I did a lot of chanting. Not for my even during during the disaster, I was chanting and offering water to the Buddha to save, at least, possibly save the village, the streets that were near me, and we only had. Two buildings burnt in that area, the only place in King Lake. The Buddha's, Buddha's power is very strong. And chanting can have a very great effect, much greater than we can imagine. So I hope, you know, people who are beginning on the path see and realize over time the benefits of other aspects of the Buddha's teachings beyond just mindfulness, just insight meditation. Because it's not so easy then to cultivate one, the energy or the aspiration to go more deeply on the path and to serve other benefits of, and benefit other beings. We're coming up to that time. Might stop here. There's always a lot of things I would like to share. I have, <laughs> when I'm studying something, I make sort of copious notes and touch on this and a little bit on that. And I mean, it's a subject in part you have heard before, but I wanted to share these very old scripts and just to inform, you know, how, how old, how far it has gone since uh, how many people have seen these and studied them and reflected on them. So if there's anyone who has any te uh, anything to ask, please, you're welcome to come and inquire. Going back to that very first picture of the pond, my pond, after I my mind was settled and my body was a little more relaxed and less tired, I, I did start to do some chanting. When I chant outside, I often chant out in the gardens, and that is for the benefit of infinite beings, those I can see and know are there, and those I, I can't. You know, the beings in the, in the water, excuse me, in the water, in the forest, many of them just sitting around me in the earth. I remember when I used to do chanting at Wat Buddha Dharma in the first years that I was there, I'd go out in the forest and sit, and I would do some chanting, then I'd meditate. And when I'd come out of meditation, there'd be a snake in front of me, there'd be a lizard on this side, a goanna <laughs> somewhere nearby. <laughs> so he was attracting the nagas of, <laughs> of the land to come and get a little bliss. 
a little peace. So when we do chant, we always benefit ourselves and others. Yes. Uh, just a question that occurred to me. Um, so this chanting, does it go back to the Buddha's time? Did they used to do that like back uh, when it was in uh, Nepal or wherever it was? Does it have its history? Well, in Nepal, there? yes. Okay. In Nepal, definitely. Uh, in the Buddhist time, no. In the Buddhist time, well, yes, in a way, because that's how they recalled the Buddhist teachings. You know, uh, chants come from sutras. And then the sutras had specific teachings to heal specific um, uh, states of ignorance within the mind. And from these teachings, then, through the chanting, they were passed on over the centuries and through into cultures. It was only, they only started to write down the text quite some hundred years after the Buddha, three or, three or four hundred years after the Buddha, they started to write text. And first it was on the papra leaves and, and bark, and then it was... Uh, it, they started to make paper. That's how that's how they've learned. Yes, they repeated and memorized, and still in Tibet. I just heard this the other day when I was listening to Robert Thurman's talk. He said in Tibet, the monks could uh, memorize five hundred were five hundred pages, and with absolute perfect recall. Like if there was something wrong in a print, they would, in their memory, able to correct that. So that just tells you how much capacity our mind has to learn and um, and develop. You know this capacity of memory. There is an online question, yes. Venerable. Um, it is from Andreas, and it is. What is the practice of appropriate attention or uniso manasikara for beginners? So it's a question of where to start with the beginning. Well, um, a little different from the talk in, in general, but, um, you know, for meditation, you really have to start uh, with a, a, cons um, a development of uh, two things. One is a practice that's going to quieten the mind and the other is to develop concentration on an object of mind. In this case, in the chanting, I'm talking about sound as an object of mind, um, the use of um, the Buddha's words that are, that are chanted as an object as we do we did earlier in in the uh, the morning when we started with the with the chanting and the refugees. So these are all something, whatever it is that we're doing in this moment, can become the object of mind. And then we focus on this to still them, bring the mind to one point. If it is to do with, with chanting and sound or the, uh, the wisdom of the text, the knowledge of the text, what the text means, then we can reflect on that, which is more a contemplative practice. But for many, they use the tool of breathing or they use the tool of, you know, focusing their attention, their, their, their eyes on something um, or listening to sound. So, you know, there's many texts on this on the, for a beginner's to have, have a look at. And I, yeah, I'd advise you go and talk to a teacher, somebody nearby and get their instructions. Mm. Yes. Thank you, your talk, Chikwan. Mm. I actually got a copy of the Avatamsaka this year and oh. started to read it. Very it, hard. <laughs> it's probably the most frustrating thing I've ever, ever read. It, it's because it, you're wanting, you're wanting yeah. to get to something. That, that's what I found while I was reading it because yeah. one of the things I found was um, it goes in excruciating detail in of these realms. Yeah. It goes into the, 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 the point being, he's talking about all the various infinite um, 
uh, groups of beings who come to listen to the teachings of the Buddha. And there's this, like in this room, you know, I'm here, you're here. So he's detailing all these different beings. But actually, sometimes people jump it jump that area, <laughs> that beginning. It's the first part of the book, but it's actually very valuable. Don't try to don't try to do too much with it. Just read it. If it's difficult to read, listen to Robert Thurman read it. Or other teachers, you know. So Venerable Hengshur, that the there's a couple of monks from the um, the realm of the ten thousand Buddhas in California, they they study this. And they've studied it for 45 years, and they are teaching it just in small sections. But um, the being, I know when I, I first started what you're talking about, because it goes on for pages and pages, but you have to chant as if it's just you're chanting something that you don't know. You know, because it's the way he's expressing the names of all these these beings. But actually, there they are linked. If you just did a meditation on a section, you will find that all those names are various qualities. So say they're talking about some, some pond or some, you know, some piece of nature, particular nature spirits, um, or a tree or something. If you actually focus on these names and keep in mind what, what their realm is, you know, we're part of a human realm, but what their particular realm is, then you will actually gain a great insight into that realm, the qualities of that realm. And so don't try to go too fast and don't try to do too much. I know it's very frustrating. I, I had to go through it and everyone says the same. But some of them who just chanted, just chanted, well, I put it. I put it down, and I, I haven't looked at it since. And, it, and it, I, I felt that I didn't have. I haven't developed the patience enough to be able to read it. No, it's and, because you're wanting something out of it. And, and yeah. that, and that was the other thing. Was like I was flipping pages because I was trying to get something. And it's like something you mentioned earlier when during the meditation yeah. is like, when you're trying to get something, you're going to miss That's it. That's one of one yeah. of forty books. You're going to have to read through. Yeah. I mean, have you got the big? Yeah, the, big, the, yeah. the 1,600 pages and they're very small writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've also got the, the – there was a series of three books with bigger writing and a little bit more in it, actually. And then he concentrated it down to this one book with 1,600, okay. 1600 pages. If you're trying to get something, you know, you never get it. Mm. Because you think in that next chapter – you'll get all the real wisdom stuff. Yeah. You know, if you want to do that, listen to Robert Thurman's. It's a, it, there's some, a couple of free ones on YouTube. They're very insightful, but they're not. They're further down the line. Book, book. I don't know what it is, um, 31 or 2 or something, you know, met far down the line. Even that, you'll be craving to get something if, if you're going in this mood, in this mind. Mm. Because you'll never get anything that way. The only it's it's a prayer. So you basically, when you do a prayer, you know you're. It's not that you're necessarily praying to anything, but you're offering yourself to that prayer. So you're offering yourself to enter into that realm. It's called that one of the one of the books is entering into the realm of totality. So entering into the, can you enter into a flower the totality of a flower? No. We can look at a flower for, for weeks, and I've done it for, you look at that flower for one hour, people go crazy because they just keep seeing more and more and more into the flower. And it just gets, you know, oh, well, what is the flower then? So you, by, by doing this, you just actually, just allow yourself to swim in it, you might say. Robert Thurman says you've got to learn to swim in it. And then you start to, it will unfold your seeing in a way, um, you know, like sometimes Savorn people, they have particular ways of seeing in ways we can't, or they can sort out puzzles in ways that we can't. They see it. 
it will develop that seeing. Yeah. Rather than, you won't, it's not about getting. It's about learning to swim in it. Yeah, I see that now. Okay, <laughs> good. You will get, by the way. You'll get the, the wisdom as it goes on. So I think we're up with time. There's no one. Yes. Everyone looks at their watch. <laughs> but thank you, everyone, for staying with it and uh, coming today. And I hope you have, uh, for the rest of your day, it's a very wonderful day. The weather's warming up. And may you keep well and safe until we meet again. Ah, uh, Banya Paramilta. Thank you.